If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. Welcome to the Change Physician Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Cady, joined by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, and we have an amazing guest today named Dr. Caldwell Esselstein, Jr., who is very well known throughout the world of nutrition, but what's most interesting is that he is an endocrine surgeon who shifted into this world of nutrition, and how he got there is is a very important and I think an incredible story to listen to. He has written the book called Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease that came out uh, several years ago. And he has done a lot of research and has found other things along the way, even after that book came out. And he and his wife and other family members have been very instrumental in helping people lead a plant-based type lifestyle or diet, and it has radically transformed people's lives, especially those with known severe heart disease. One thing to add to this episode is really important for people to listen, whether you're a physician or a non-physician, is the fact that a lot of these things that we think are permanent, which you'll soon recognize, certainly through this interview, is a lot of the chronic diseases that we have sort of resigned ourselves to live with can be reversed one of which is the number one killer of Americans today, cardiovascular disease. And through things like diet and lifestyle change, the dramatic changes that occur, and in some situations, how quick they can occur. Absolute fantastic episode here, fantastic discussion. I think you're gonna really enjoy it. I think you're gonna learn a lot. Uh, So here we go with the show. It all started for me uh, when I uh, decided uh, that I wanted to go to uh, medical school because although I, uh, I wasn't really sure, my father was a physician, but I somehow in my, uh, uh, between my junior and senior year at Yale, where I was an undergraduate, I, uh, I decided that I was always regretted if I didn't at least try to go to medical school. So long and long story short, I, I ended up being accepted at uh, uh, Case Western Reserve, which was then Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And I graduated from there in 1961, took my rotating internship in, uh, at, in medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. And then I transitioned to a uh, general surgical residency. And then I finished my surgical training in 1960. Six, uh, then I was taken uh, into the Army. And the first year I was a surgeon at Womack Army Hospital in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and at Fort Bragg. And my second year in the Army, I was a combat surgeon in Vietnam. And then when I came back from Vietnam, I was offered a position uh, in general surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, which I accepted. And I finished, finished my surgical career there after uh, 31 years, uh, some, uh, some, 20, some 20 years ago. <laughs> and, 
uh, but it was it was during uh, I guess the first nine years at the, at the Cleveland Clinic that I was chairman of our breast cancer task force and head of the section on thyroid and, and parathyroid surgery that I became so disillusioned with the fact that for, for no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And that led to a, a bit of global research on my part. And it was quite striking to see that there were multiple cultures like Kenya where breast cancer rates were 30 and 40 times less, less frequent than in the United States. And if you were to look at rural Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, they now have the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. So even more compelling perhaps was the prostate cancer in 1958, in the entire nation of Japan, how many autopsy proven deaths were there from prostate cancer? 18. Mm -hmm. Entire nation, the most mind boggling public health figure I think I've ever encountered. And by 1978, 20 years later, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 men who will die of prostate cancer uh, in this country this year. But along about this time in this research, it became rather compelling to witness that there were multiple cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And then it dawned on me that it would probably be much more bang for the buck. If we could take the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, cardiovascular disease, because if we could persuade people to eat in a way that they would protect themselves from cardiovascular disease, it would also most likely diminish the likelihood of acquiring the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and pancreatic. So that was how that transpired, but you just can't, you just can't sort of say that you and have people do it. You've got to have more data. And so it was apparent to me that I would have to do some research. Uh, and so I was able to speak with the chairman of cardiology in uh, 1985. I was Dr. Bill Sheldon and he, uh, allowed me to make a presentation before the cardiology department because I needed about 20, I needed 24 patients, which is a small amount, but I needed the small amount of patients who were seriously ill with heart disease and to, and to try to see if we could get them to eat plant-based nutrition and see if we couldn't halt or reverse their disease. And that was started in 1985. And what was uh, the great hurdle that I felt was how do, you take, how do you take these patients and get them to really stick to a plant-based diet, which is a very significant transition from the typical Western diet. And uh, therefore I decided to use in, in following these patients, 
I would use the same mantra that I had been using for my cancer patients that I had learned years ago from a marvelous West Coast surgeon by the name of Bert Dunphy. And Bert used to say that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer. Patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are afraid of being abandoned by their family or by their physician. So for the first five years of the study, I saw every one of those patients every two weeks in the office. We drew blood for their cholesterol, checked their blood pressure, their weight, and I went over every morsel they ate. And at the end of five years, I got a little bit more courageous and I stretched it out to once a month. Most cardiologists see their patients twice a year. And by the end of 10 years, they were now on pretty well autopilot. And so we then stretched it out to seeing them quarterly. And at the end of 12 years, that's when we wrote up the study. But when you think about it, 12 years makes us probably the longest, if not one of the longest studies of its type in the medical literature. Because when you follow people for 12 years, it's almost half a career. <laughs> well, but what was exciting was the fact that we were seeing some, some very exciting results. I mean, I mean, these were patients who had failed their first or second bypass. They had failed their, their first or second angioplasty, or they were too sick for these procedures, or they had refused. And five were told by their expert cardiologist that they wouldn't live out uh, the year. And those five all made, all made it for close to 20 years. So it was, uh, it was very uh, gratifying and very exciting. Uh, and so we wrote this up in the uh, Journal of Family Practice in 1995, which was the five-year results. And then later on, we wrote up the 12-year results. And it was very exciting because when we looked uh, especially at the 18 patients who stayed with us, because there were six nice guys who were, I knew within the first month or two of the study, they just didn't get it. And so I had no money for this study and I released them full-time to their expert cardiologist. So there were the 18 that remained. It was interesting. At, at 12 years of follow-up, I looked, we looked back at the eight years prior to coming into our study while they were in the hands of expert cardiologists, I wanted to know how many cardiac events they had had of progressive disease. And among those 18, there were 49 events in various categories of a worsening stress test, a worsening angiogram, a heart attack, or a stroke. And uh, it was interesting that when we compared that with how those same 18 had done in the 12 years that were on our program, 17 of those 18 had no further events. One little sheep, after six years, wandered from the flock, got into the red <laughs> lamb chops, french fries, glazed donuts, and had more angina, had to have bypass, but he's now back with the flock, but proves the point that I'm trying to share with you today. So that was sort of the, uh, the exciting background. We. Uh, I began to feel that we were seeing such positive results that uh, I would feel it was appropriate to have a national conference on the prevention and reversal of heart disease because here we were 
we have, by this time, we also have seen Ornish's data and my own data. And it was really high time to try to sort of bring this uh, to the, uh, to the, to the broad spectrum of uh, people who are in the medical field. We wanted to focus on cardiologists and nurses and physicians who had this kind of an interest. And there were a hundred people who came to this and we had this in uh, Tucson, uh, Arizona in 1991. And also my good friend, Colin Campbell was there and Dean Ornish was there. We had uh, William Costelli, who was director of the world famous Framingham Heart Study outside of Boston. And, and a host of other really rather legendary physicians. But, you know, not surprisingly, I, <laughs> we didn't turn the, turn the world upside down, but I was inspired enough with what we were getting results to repeat the similar conference, this time with 500 people attending. And it was held in, uh, in Disney in, uh, in Florida, in Epcot. And it was really quite exciting to, uh, uh, to see a much greater interest. And then since then, there have been now, uh, once a year, there are about between five and six or seven conferences on plant-based nutrition and the benefits that it has for, uh, for health. Uh, since that time, I did continue to, uh, to see uh, patients with cardiovascular disease. And we wrote up another group. This time, we followed them close to four years. This time, there wasn't eight, eight, it wasn't 18 because one of the criticisms of our study was it was small, it wasn't randomized, it was Dr. Esselstyn's is a severe diet change, what makes you think you could ever repeat this study and get similar results. So we did, this time with 200 patients, two were lost to follow up, but the other 198 uh, we followed, uh, uh, and they all had severe cardiovascular disease. And it was really quite exciting <clears throat> to, uh, to see that of those 198, 177, which was actually 89.3%, almost 90% were following the program. And over that four year period, they had no further events except for one patient who, again, while he was in China, he strayed. <laughs> and began eating off the economy, he had a small stroke from which he recovered. But <clears throat> here again, we were seeing uh, the power of, of plant-based nutrition because the 21 patients who did not follow the program, 62% had further progression of their disease. So uh, that kind of is bringing you up to date quickly on where things stand at the moment. Uh, it's really high time to really continue to get the medical profession to come on board with this power. Because when you look back, it's been now almost a hundred years, a hundred years that we have known that there are multiple cultures on the planet earth where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent. And here it is the number one killer of women and men in Western civilization. This is not a malignancy. And you don't have to use a pill or a stent or a bypass to cure it. Matter of fact, 
those things have nothing whatsoever to do with trying to treat this disease because they merely treat symptoms. When you treat the causation of the illness, that's when you see it halt and begin to reverse. Well, you can't, I mean, I think both of us feel very strongly that that is so true. And I think what's, what's very intriguing to me is this shift that you did back then when you were curious enough and willing to dive into the data and, and look beyond your, the lens that you're living in and realize that there's, there's more information out there to show us that we may not be right. And I think as physicians, if we aren't open to looking at the data, we have this cognitive dissonance or this discomfort of trying to accept the fact that what we think we know may not be the reality. And so I'm curious back then, because it, it can still be a struggle now, trying to so-called convince or prove to other clinicians that, I mean, back then, how, how did you handle, you said you couldn't just come out and say it. <laughs> you had to show the data. What was kind of your superpower in being able to finesse that transition to help people start opening their eyes to maybe they're wrong? Well, what helps a lot with physicians is uh, I find there are two things. Uh, one, uh, we did uh, angiograms uh, before and after, and the angiograms showed disease reversal. Yes. We also uh, did something called a, a, a Doppler ultrasound of the carotid artery. We'd be, we'd be able to show we could not only halt that, but reverse it in many patients. And also, uh, there is, when somebody has a problem, let's say the partially blocked artery in the thigh, this is a, a gentleman from one of our uh, earliest uh, uh, patients. He had to stop five times crossing the Skyway uh, to my office because of this partially blocked artery in his thigh, which deprived his calf muscle of enough blood and oxygen and nutrients, so he had to stop five times to allow, to allow the calf muscle to fill up with blood again, walk another 20, 25 yards, do it again. Yeah. So we, at, at, his, at his right ankle, we then did, a, at the time we first saw him, a thing called pulse volume. And I was so focused on his uh, heart, I totally forgot about his leg until 10 months after uh, working with him, one day in the office visit, he said, Dr. Esselstyn, do you recall when I first started seeing you, I had to stop five times crossing the skyway to your office. He said, you know, in the last month or two now, the pain began to go away and now it's gone. I said, well, back you go to the vascular lab. So then I have this slide that shows that the new pulse volume was absolutely doubled. And this was an absolute eureka moment for us because this was in 1986. This was a year before the statins came out. So anybody who said, well, Dr. Esselstyn, that was probably the statin. No, 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 no. We had absolute rock solid, irrefutable proof that food and food alone could absolutely reverse cardiovascular disease. Then we did it. So we've had an angiogram. We've had the PET scan. I'm not assuming we had the, uh, Pulse volume, and then I'm going to tell you about the uh, a PET scan. In the PET scan, when they had it, 
the heart muscle, if there's good blood supply, appears orange or yellow. But in this gentleman's heart, there was one patch that was absolutely green because it's ischemic. It lacks normal blood supply. As a matter of fact, it's quite deprived of blood supply. So we counseled him. He went plant-based. We repeated the PET scan in three weeks. And the area that was formerly green or with poor blood supply, the blood supply was now restored and it was now yellow and orange. So it's really quite exciting to see how rapidly at, a, at, a, at what we call a microvascular level, because you don't wash out a, any large significant blockage or plaque in three weeks. But what you do do is you change what we call the endothelial output of nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is the vessel's strongest blood vessel dilator. So that this entire cascade these thousands and thousands of intramuscular arteries, which have been sort of pinched because of a lack of nitric oxide and, and an overdose of what we call vasoconstrictors, because your endothelial cells become, <clears throat> shall we say, your enemy. When they've been so beaten up and deprived with Western eating, they make a molecule of endothelin and thromboxane, which are vasoconstrictors. So there's not a block per se not a mechanical block in these tiny arteries. They are just all in sort of semi-spasm, if you were, or pinched. And suddenly when you open up those, those thousand within three weeks, they're open up. <clears throat> That's a tsunami of additional blood supply for this, uh, <clears throat> for this, this heart. And I thought we should take a moment and mention the, another way you throw the hook for the patient's in vocabulary they can understand. And also, you'd use the same vocabulary for, for the doctors when you want them to understand this. Namely, that all experts would agree that where this disease of cardiovascular disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessel, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining of the artery, the endothelium. And the endothelium is responsible for making this magic molecule of gas, nitric oxide, which is responsible for the salvation and the protection of all of our blood vessels because of its remarkable functions. For example, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro, keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, Nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the artery from becoming stiffened, thick, or inflamed. Protects us from getting high blood pressure and hypertension. Number four, here is the absolute key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing any blockages or plaque. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth who has cardiovascular disease has their disease because now in the preceding decades, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial system into a train wreck that they no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making these blockages or plaque. However, 
The good news is that this is not a malignancy. It is a completely benign foodborne illness. And once you can get patients to understand that never, never, never again are they to have passed through their lips a single morsel that is going to further injure an already train wreck endothelium, then the endothelium begins to recover, makes enough nitric oxide so you can not only halt disease progression, but we often will see significant elements of disease reversal. Which, now, oh. which, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips, you injure the endothelial cells? They are, one, any drop of oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures the endothelial lining, as does anything with a mother or a face. Meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs, and anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt, and sugary drinks, diet colas, Pepsi, and Coke, and I don't like sugary foods. Sugar injures endothelial cells. Sugary foods such as cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And I don't like for my heart patients, I don't, okay, if you don't have heart disease, but if you have heart disease, I don't like nuts, peanut butter, cashew sauce, uh, nut butters, or avocado. And finally, no coffee with caffeine in my patients. Yes, they can have coffee that is decaf. All right, what are you gonna eat? All these marvelous whole grains for your cereal bread, pasta rolls and bagels, 101 different types of legumes, lentils and beans. All these marvelous red, yellow and green leafy vegetables, white potatoes, sweet potatoes and fruit. And there are many, many delicious, delicious recipes that have been devised uh, for, those, uh, for that style of eating. Now, there is one thing that we have added just in the last nine years. It's not in the book. And uh, that is highly important because by now you've understand that I've stressed how important the endothelial cells are. But the endothelial production of nitric oxide suffers with age. So if you're beautifully healthy at age 50, the amount of nitric oxide your endothelial cells are producing is now 50% of what it was when you were 25. And by the time you're over 80, you're getting 73% less. So maybe there's a way we can re-excite re 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 that endothelial production of nitric oxide and also take advantage of a brand new alternate pathway that has sort of just been discovered that, from, that the body can utilize. And this has uh, been found out about 10, 15 years ago. And so what we add is, is this. For the patients who have cardiovascular disease and they have these blockages, I asked them to try to imagine shrinking their head to a size that could crawl inside the artery, and they would see that the blockage is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. So 
we need antioxidants, but no, do not go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant because it doesn't work and it's going to be harmful. I need you to get your antioxidants from food. Fair enough, what food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value, O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity. So if you're having raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries on your morning oat cereal, that's a terrific start. However, nothing can trump the antioxidant value of <clears throat> green leafy vegetables. So I need you to chew six times a day green leafy vegetable that is roughly half the size of your fist. And then the first must be boiled in water five and a half to six minutes so it's nice and tender. And then you must anoint it with either rice or balsamic vinegar, several drops, because the acetic acid in those vinegars in research has been shown to restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme that is responsible within the endothelial cell for making nitric oxide. Now, the second great benefit uh, when chewing these is it restores the capacity of your bone marrow to once again make the endothelial progenitor cells. What do they do? The endothelial progenitor cells replace our senescent, injured, worn out endothelial cells. And therefore, I'm good, you're going to eat, chew this alongside your breakfast cereal, again as a mid-morning snack, again with your lunch and sandwich, that's three, mid-afternoon, four, dinner time, five. And of course, I adore it when you have that evening snack of kale, number six. Now, the third benefit from chewing the greens, and this is the absolute key. When you're chewing the greens, you are chewing a nitrate. As you chew <clears throat> this nitrate, it is going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the grips and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria are going to reduce the green nitrate to nitrite. Now, when you swallow the nitrite, it is your own gastric acid which further reduces the nitrite to more nitric oxide. So literally <clears throat> what you're doing now is the following. With no hideous side effects, no significant additional expense, from dawn to dusk, all day long, you are restoring the very molecule, nitric oxide, the deficiency of which has given you this disease in the first place. Now, a couple of caveats. Toothpaste with fluoride, drinking public drinking water with fluoride, mouthwash, all three of those will injure the beneficial bacteria in your mouth. And we want to also avoid antacids because antacids will reduce your gastric acidity and you'll not be able to convert or reduce, that is, the nitrite to more nitric oxide. Now, if you're wondering what are the green leafy vegetables I'm talking about, they are bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard green, beet greens, mustard green, turnip greens, napa, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus. And the top five are kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, beet greens, and beets. You are a natural teacher. That's my story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I have, I just have to go to it 
when did you identify yourself as, I know it was a, a, a realization over time and a building of, of, of faith and, and data, but when did you stop doing surgery and allow yourself this shift and transition into this identity of essentially like a lifestyle nutrition based type medicine? 2001. That was the shift. Well, I mean, obviously, I, I started emerged over time. 1984, and right. I was doing it sort of on the side, simultaneously as research, even while I was still carrying on my uh, surgical obligations. But then uh, I had uh, I'd always said that at a certain age that I would retire from surgery, which I did, mm -hmm. and uh, and so that has allowed me to have more focus. Uh, on this, I didn't. I decided not to drop it because, I mean, we were getting results that were so exciting, and yet here the rest of the world is, still is a little bit uh, problematic. I should share with you that five years ago, I was invited to become a member of the American College of Cardiology to join their nutrition committee, and one of our major tasks is to try to educate cardiology. Uh, about the causation of the illness that they've been designated to treat. And because they get nothing about nutrition in medical school that is substantive or even in their postgraduate training. Yeah. The, the question is if they get paid to teach their patients this versus all the other things that they're taught to do. I guess, do you find any conflict there? Oh, sure. When, when patients, I mean, when cardiologists are getting paid, you know, for, for diagnosis, imaging, angiogram, stents, prescribing drugs and things for symptoms and bypass surgery. But, uh, see, the, the frustration is that all those activities account for about 46% of Medicare costs are cardiology. And Sadly, cardiology today is sort of the symptomatic treatment of this disease. Uh, I mean, you get your first or second st stent, and then in a few more years, you get a couple more stents, or, or then you might, later on, you might be asked to, uh, to have a uh, <clears throat> uh, bypass. The dilemma in medicine, um, and more than just that field, for sure. Kevin, I didn't want to steal all the the thunder and questions. Well, there's, there's so many places to go with, with this. And, and the first thing I'm thinking is I need to go chew my vegetables now. <laughs> you know, and the other part is, is the, the way you describe that, I'm thinking we, you know, we spend however millions of dollars on advertising a little blue pill for a male problem that has to do with microvesc uh, you know, microvascular disease. And I'm like, instead, they, we should be saying, here, choose some green leafy vessels. Not only will it help your, your, your erectile dysfunction, but it should help the rest of your blood vessels throughout the rest of your body and get to the root cause of this. Yeah, you got it. That's right. Um, but the other, the, the other part from, from a, a personal perspective is this very challenging. And you kind of revealed it where you said, I could see the results with my patients. And that's what you got excited about. But you had many years where you're still stored in this culture where people are probably saying, well, why are you doing this dietary thing? Stick to surgery, you know, uh, how did you maintain your sanity when you're like, hey, we have this 
We have plant-based nutrition. We, we have demonstrated outcomes. We have long-term studies, longer than most. We have outcomes that are better than most of the medications that you're even seeing. In fact, probably all the medications that were typically being prescribed. How, how did you keep your sanity and how did you keep your pace during that and keep, keep focused on that mission? Well, you know, the, uh, the reason it was pretty easy was uh, <laughs> we were getting such exciting results. And for me, even today, I, I mean, I still, once a month, I continue to conduct an intensive cardiovascular disease counseling seminar for patients with cardiovascular disease. Many of these patients come with uh, angina or they have been told they have to have stents or they've been told they have to have bypass surgery. And uh, the truth of the matter is, if they're not in any kind of an acute emergency where a bypass or a stent could be life-saving, but where they're in what we call the elective category, they're stable, they're not an emergency. If they're willing to commit to this completely, uh, they don't have to have these interventions. And also, uh, uh, you know, it's the challenges in life that are exciting. And especially, it's easy to stay with it when, you've, when you're right. And we've had now a number of wonderful cardiologists who've actually made the transition. Not a lot, but some. And it's, it's so heartwarming and exciting to see these uh, people getting similar results when they're willing to, uh, to simply talk to their patients. But, it, you know, when you're making a lifestyle change uh, with a patient, that is an enormous commitment, not only on the part of the patient, but it has to be on the part of the physician. Because if you just think, because many physicians say that they've tried it and their patients won't do it, it's too severe, strict, or extreme. Well, that's farther, nothing farther from the truth. Because when you think about uh, lifestyle change, the, the only way you're going to get lifestyle change to me is to show the patient respect. And the only way to show a patient respect is to give them your time. If you think that you're gonna get a patient in a 12 or 15 minute office visit to transition their lifestyle, forget it. Uh, our, our, our seminar uh, is five and a half to six hours where the patients are gonna learn all about how they have created their disease and precisely how we are going to empower them as the locus of control to halt and reverse their disease. And to do that, you got to give them your time. And also we want to give them the uh, vocabulary uh, in a, in a, a, in a the, given the scientific voc uh, vocabulary in a way that they can understand it. For example, by now you and your friend understand that the endothelial production of nitric oxide is the key. Those two words are the words I want patients to remember. Endothelial cell and nitric oxide. If they understand how they produce their disease by destroying their endothelial production of nitric oxide, then they can get pretty excited about the fact that, hey, six times a day chewing these greens I, I can get back some of that nitric oxide. And uh, some of them really can dive right into it, yeah. I, I love that. And th the other thing I wanted to kind of touch on a little bit, and you, and you did, you revealed it already, 
uh, was I was hearing how you're following with your patients and you're like, I was meeting with them every month for however many years and we did this. And it, it just reminded me, because like you said, so many physicians will be like, well, my patients just don't listen to me. You know, I, I said, go change your diet, but they didn't change when they followed up in six months to a year. But you, when you spend the time to listen and engage them, uh, and it seems like your, your track record is pretty good on that. You started with the cohort, the cohort's still with you. And that says a lot to, to your engaging your, your patient population and show them that you believe in them. So it's, I just I want physicians who think that their patients aren't listening to, to kind of understand maybe, maybe we have to do some work on our end and actually take the time to listen to our patients. So. Yeah, I, I feel, um, I have to say, the first time I encountered you and understanding anything about your work was when I saw an actual image of the before and after on um, just with the coronary arteries. And I saw that the disease had been eliminated and, and it just shows the power, which can sometimes be a negative thing at times, depending how it's used, but how visual we are as humans, you, I, I think it's amazing what you've done and how you said that you need to help them understand at the core of what's causing their problem. In essence, it seems like helping them create a visualization of what it is they've been doing that created the problem, which has given them the power back that they can creatively address that in a way that's effective and reversing the disease themselves. And, and I think that that's I'm curious what you feel about this idea of even physicians trying to change their perspective and learn something new and how sometimes it takes visualization of things or for the patients understanding at a level that they can visualize how they can actually change their lives. Oh, I think that's terribly important. I can't, I mean, often what I'm doing, what I'm doing with you right now, which is a Zoom, I often have my uh, my slides appear. I'm, my face is just a little thing on the side, <laughs> the slide, and then I hear my voice describing it. And yes, there are at least uh, seven or eight really visual uh, formats that I've just shared with you. I've shown you the angiograms. We'll look at the pulse volume studies. We'll look at the PET scans. Uh, I mean, it's really quite exciting and very powerful, uh, absolutely, with what you were just saying. And namely, you back it up, what you're saying with the actual visual proof. And then the other thing we have uh, always in our seminar, we usually wind up with one or two of our uh, local or regional participants who've had a previous successful experience because they, uh, they can be so articulate and so powerful because if I give the science and then Anne comes along and gives them about all the practicality about plant-based eating, how to acquire and prepare these foods, and then they sit there wondering, well, how do I know it works? Well, then bingo, in comes uh, Jim or uh, Art or somebody else, and, <laughs> and, and they give their story, and then it's, it's all over. It's, right. it's so powerful. Right. So you have all those dimensions of, and that's what I think makes us able to have a close to a, close to a 90% adherence. Can you imagine somebody after putting up with me for a six or five or six hours, an understanding about the endothelial cell and nitric oxide. How could anybody with a brain in their head come up to me afterwards and say, Dr. Esselstyn, gosh, that was fascinating, but you know, Lois and I have been married 
for 35 years and we're going to have our wedding anniversary in two weeks and boy, am I going to destroy my last few endothelial cells. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> the, the power of, of a persuasive uh, uh, discussion. And I guess that's the other thing about this is, is that you just haven't just produced research and you haven't just said, well, this is what you need to do, is you framed your message in such a way that it's easily digestible, understandable, and actionable. And I, 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 I think that's another kind of key lesson for physicians is if you have this information and knowledge that we know is beneficial for people, there takes some work on, how, on thinking about how we deliver that information to our patients and clients so that it's useful to them. And, uh, and your your presentation today was just remarkable. I just absolutely loved your teaching style. I loved loved the details that you provided in the in the ability to contextualize and take very complex information and make it so meaningful. So uh, kudos, absolutely, that was amazing. Thank you. Well, we want to be respectful of your time and. Um, Thank you. Yes, and I just want to, you know, um, mention that for those that, and, and feel free to add to it if you want to, but people that want to follow what you're doing at uh, DrEsselston.com, some of the papers, they'll see the success stories. Well, you have so many family members that are part of all of this, and they're doing amazing work, and I just want to thank you for not only you know, making a difference for all those out there, but you're, you've created and, and, and brought this family that's it's a ripple effect that's affected so many people in a positive way. And I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, this has been a, an absolute joy to see you today. And for those that are listening, this is the Change Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Melissa Cady with my host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro. And feel free to check out the full episodes at thechangephysician.com. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.